0: I was being romantic, you know, giving you your
1: freedom or something.
0: You were giving me my freedom, but you wanted me to stay faithful to you.
1: I was only 19.
0: Mhm.
1: my Mahan. What? Check Mahan, a boy, Flynn, Billy Patterson, final wait.
0: Jesus, Billy, how are you
1: doing? Good, good. I'm doing fine. Don't look mad. But there's the car behind you? And the last Cali kind of boy was in that car. Didn't die a happy death, so I'm walking the peace line together. Let's
0: go. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. The film that Stephen Benedict and I are going to drop into this week is 1997's The Boxer. Uh, This is starring the greatest male actor in the world, Daniel Day Lewis. It's a strange film with the struggle in Northern Ireland as the backdrop. And it's just an example, I think, again, of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is look how boxing is a lens through we can look at much bigger issues. And sometimes these things coalesce in ways that are profoundly powerful, and other times everything should add up to something powerful, and it just struggles. And I think there are some good performances in this film, but... uh, it's, it's just a strange film and feels pretty muddled, but uh, you got Daniel Day-Lewis in it and the director of In the Name of the Father. You know, Coming in, this looked like the stars would align into something special, and, and instead it became something kind of strange. So that's where Benedict and I went with it. So I hope you enjoy The Boxer. Daniel Day-Lewis, my opinion, I don't think I'm alone in this, is the greatest living actor that we have, or maybe the second best after Meryl Streep. Um, To have him, uh, an actor of his quality, devote three years of training, and I found myself remembering something from the screenwriter for Eyes Wide Shut, where Stanley Kubrick said to him, uh, has anybody ever made a film about the Holocaust? And this was not long after Schindler's List. And the screenwriter, I think uh, Ray- Raphael, Frederick Raphael was the man yeah. I'm remembering, uh, said, well, there is that Steven Spielberg film that did pretty well. And Kubrick said, that wasn't about six million people who died, that's about 1,000 people who lived. And yeah. I, I found myself similarly with Northern Ireland thinking, can you make this in 90 minutes? And should anybody try? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that was part of the problem that we had, you know, as as a lot of Irish people had in the 1990s, watching the movie. Um, There was great anticipation for it, undoubtedly. Um, When it was announced that Jim Sheridan and and Daniel Delewis were collaborating for a third time, the first time having uh, had great success with My Left Foot, Daniel Delewis won the Oscar for that. They reunited a couple of years later to make it In the Name of the Father, which was an incendiary movie. I think it's a fantastic film. That nabbed seven Oscar nominations. And you just mentioned Schindler's List. Uh, it had the misfortune to come up against Schindler's List that year. And I think if you took Schindler's List out of the equation, In the Name of the Father had a pretty good shot at Picture of the Year. And so then, um, as you said, De DeLewis embarks on a three year prep to make this movie. And in the interim, uh, there was a flood of US investment in Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, that was under. Uh, president clinton's administration and as a consequence of that then there was enormous flood of movies that were made addressing the situation in northern ireland uh, some people call it the troubles um i call it the war i mean just you know you can't be polite about it There, were, it was a war it was a guerrilla warfare but it was still a war and um by the time that the the the, the boxer came out i think in december 1997 early 98 we really were fatigued because we had many, many, many films and we were sort of tapped out on the subject. And unfortunately, The Boxer really was the, the movie that punched us down. We couldn't get up off this. It just didn't, excuse the puns, it didn't land. Uh, it wasn't the knockout, but so many reasons why it didn't work. And yet there are so many reasons why it should have. So I think it will be interesting for us to discuss where it went wrong. I mean, from my point of view, I think the, the the tendency would be, or the inclination, or the temptation would be to to speak about in terms of its political terms and po- its political content. But I think it's better for listeners if, if we were just to talk about the boxing. Mm-hmm. Let's begin with, I mean, in the movies that we've discussed so far, you know, Million Dollar Baby, and we've discussed Rocky and Raging Bull, and Fat City, which we both agree is just way out there, way up there, spectacular. Okay. And- Completely um, underappreciated, unfortunately unknown. How does the boxing? Uh, how does the boxing feel in this picture? Was it real for you? Or I thought. I mean, it's interesting
0: because there, Daniel Day Lewis, I think, is uh, maybe gives the most credible performance, looking like a boxer. I think yeah. he's smooth. Um, it's not just the training regimen. You know, Stallone can look good on a speed bag or doing some of the training for the montages, but once he gets into the ring, nobody can fight like that because it's not a boxer, you know. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis looks really fluid and smooth for, I think he's about 39 at the time that he's right. doing this performance. He's playing 32, but he looks very credibly 32, in shape, somebody who's in this. I don't know, I think um, his trainer who was getting him in condition said he could move right into the top ten as a result of it. Uh, Wishful thinking, but I mean... I think that's publicity, with respect. But he looks very good, and then ironically, the last scene in the film where he beats his, I believe, Nigerian opponent into submission, and then refuses to sort of kill him off to demonstrate his decency and... um, in opposition to a crowd that looks like the House of Lords has gathered for some kind of underground (laughs) contest from the 19th century. It's very Victorian, uh, tickling glasses um, to applaud. Um, That scene seems so unbelievably fraudulent to boxing. And yet, as it turns out, it's based on a real incident that happened, I believe, with an Irish boxer.
1: Really? Okay. So the
0: false note is the one that's actually based on something that's true.
1: Authentic. Yeah. Um, yeah I, what I liked about the the, the boxing sequences is it, you didn't have music. You didn't have the pulsating score of Bill Conti in Rocky. You didn't have the expression of soundtrack sound design that you, you were enjoyed um, with Frank Warner, uh, who, who did the sound design for uh, Raging Bull. You know, you didn't have percussive, not percussive, but it's almost um, jungle like sounds you'd hear roaring elephants and you'd have snare drums and gunshots and it was brilliantly contrived you know it works it works because that's the way that uh, Scorsese is able to organize his palette and um, Fat City I thought was good but what I was really intrigued here in the boxer was how quiet the fights were because you didn't have the roaring crowds so all you hear are the really what I would describe as the wet swoosh of the, the, the glove going through the air and then impacting it on the sweaty face. You know, and you'd hear a, tsh, but it wasn't sort of a symbol that you'd hear from a high hat or, or a drum drum kit. And yeah. that's what I was impressed with. And I, I as, just like you with, the, with Daniel DeLewis' physique, You know, if we look at mentioning other films, like I think Jake Gyllenhaal did South Pole. Yeah. And I don't know how a boxer would be able to carry that sort of physique in a ring for 15 rounds. I mean, surely that's just not possible. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's almost as if the actor has overdone himself in his prep.
0: Right. I mean, I think I think they're trying to look the part of a boxer much more than achieve the utility of that physique to be a good
1: boxer. Right, the utility. So that's the reason why Danny DeLewis moves well. Yes. Is, is convincing in that respect. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that was that part of the problem that the film, enga- film encountered was originally it was going to be, it originated as a, as a biography of our, one of Ireland's greatest boxers, Barry McGuigan. Hmm. Uh, and he, I think, was the flyweight champion back in the 1980s. And um, he's a very, very interesting person in Irish sport, but also in relation to what happened in Northern Ireland, because McGuigan was actually born on a border county, which is actually in Ulster. It's one of the strange uh, strange things about Ireland. He was born in the province of Ulster, but outside of Northern Ireland. He was actually born in the Republic, Mm -hmm. but he was born in Monaghan. And um, he comes from a Catholic family. But in 1981, he married a woman from the Protestant community, uh, Santa Santa Milif. His manager, Barney Eastwood said, look, the best way for us to cultivate your career is to fight in Britain, to fight in the UK. And um, so Barry McGuigan won the British title, but he won the British title whenever he fought for, when he was moving up the ranks to contend for the title, he always wore the United Nations flag of peace the peace flag from the United Nations on his shorts. He didn't wear the tricolor from Northern Ireland and he didn't wear the British Union Jack. So here was a guy who was trying to integrate both communities, trying to get them to come together. So, you know, and strangely, he was using the art form of fighting to, to unite, to, to disparate unities, Sorry, to communities. And um, when he would enter the ring, uh, it was then the question is, you know, uh, what national anthem does he, does he enter under? He entered under neither. He entered under the song Danny boy, Wrong. which is what they Right. And the, you know, these are beautifully romantic elements that you can incorporate into a fantastic story. And, um, but the strange thing, well, well it's not so strange. Um, given that we see the, the, the social pressure, the, the huge pressure that the Catholic community place under place upon their own people, uh, the Republican community in Northern Ireland, in the film, uh, it shouldn't really has come as some surprise that that when McGuigan actually won the world title, uh, there were slogans daubed right across Belfast saying, Barry the Brit sold his soul for English gold. Oh. So, you know, the thing was that he wasn't, he wasn't, um, he was, because he was trying to be completely neutral and bring people together, he was regarded as a sellout, you know? And the entire idea there, I think is a really, really rich, um, material to make a really really compelling story it's almost as if you're making on the waterfront before on the waterfront was made this I is brando know. when he had the shot in at the title and then somebody comes down from whatever the republican community and said kate this ain't the night <laughs> you <know? laughs> can have his brother there it's just brilliant material and for some reason it just falls completely flat
0: almost everything just doesn't land it it almost seems aspirationally cliche mm. at times where you're just thinking this this clearly everything is pointing to its heading here surely they're going to deceive me and take it somewhere else and they never do
1: yeah i and i don't know how i mean as to going back together what i was saying is that the material is, the, it has such great potential and um, you know even if we were just The danger, though, that we're going to encounter in discussing the film now is that we will start to apply readings to it and afford it sort of um, metaphorical meaning or symbolic value when the movie really doesn't earn it. Um, You mentioned the fight that he has in London where he plays, where he fights a a boxer actually called Clayton Stewart, a real-life boxer, and Stewart, and he played this Nigerian boxer, I think, um, Akeem Mohammed. Was was the opponent, and you know, again, I'm saying this: we're in danger now of applying a meta meaning to the film, to the scenes, because you know, if if he goes, he goes to London, and this is a private gentleman's club that we're seeing the fighting, the fight take place, and the bout is, you know, it's it's in a club, it's not in our usual arena, and people are having dinner, and as you said, it's like Victorian things, people clinking the glasses, and they were throwing money on the on the canvas and stuff like that, and then. Um, because he's fl- he's fighting a a Nigerian boxer, that immediately brings into the brings into play the opportunity to um, reflect upon colonization of a different sort. Because obviously Ireland was colonized by Britain, and this is he's gone to London, and then you have a Nigerian boxer. And I think it is a, a telling moment that Daniel D. Lewis's character beats Akim into submission. I mean, Akim is no is in no condition to continue the fight. But the, the referee says, keep fighting, keep fighting. I don't know whether that's permissible in real-life boxing.
0: I, I mean, there are rare instances where a referee will not apply his duty, which is if a fighter can't defend himself, yeah, the, the fight should be concluded. In this case, it just adds to this uh, license of thematic uh, yeah. depravity, mm. which, which I think is there as a counterpoint to Daniel Day-Lewis's intrinsic dignity and integrity and yeah. decency yeah. and uh, no it, it, it's a very odd scene because it's on the one hand feels very private it's this kind of opulently cavernous setting mm-hmm. and at the same time we're seeing the other characters back in ireland watching it on tv you know
1: i've just not ever seen these fights like <laughs> from this i know, I know. It, that's the thing. It just didn't ring true. And a moment where it could have been very, very profound and very telling and, you know, bringing in a different layer of, as I said, colonization, imperialism, because that's really what happened in, in Ireland. Um, and they, they fluff it. And I think part of the reason why they, they, they ruin it is because they conflate and they don't, they fail to mix or blend two elements. In your traditional, um, movie uh, set in Northern Ireland or in, in in about Irish history, British characters are the villains. They're the opposition. And they're they're the reason why Irish people are oppressed. But in this movie, the, the people who are oppressive are the people who want to continue the armed struggle. This is a movie that came out in 1997 and at the, at, at that almost at the near climax to the peace process, which has been undertaken, Uh, For decades, with firstly with John Hume in the 1960s, and then a really great great momentum under President Clinton, Um, because the the Good Friday Agreement was signed the next April. You know, the movie comes out in December, so it's almost at the the climax of this. So in the movie, the the villains are the IRA um, characters, the IRA the elements within the IRA who want to continue the armed struggle, and the people who are we're siding with, and um, the movie is definitely backing are the people who are back in the peace process, who are looking to, to gain, pre- present the ceasefire. But then when they go to London, there's a new villain pre- presented, which is Britain. And so they tried to they try to mix them, but I think they, they failed to even conflate them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, the, the most telling thing is when Daniel Deleuze's character refuses to finish the fight. He says, it's over and just walks away. And you cut back to Belfast and Harry, who is the character who wants to continue the, the armed struggle, says, told you he was a quitter, didn't I, Billy? Box on. It's over. Box on.
0: The fight's over. Told you he was a quitter, didn't I, Billy?
1: You should stop the fucking fight. You should have stopped it. Which means that he's not one of us, which means he is the other. Now, again, I'm, we're running into a difficulty here. We're going to afford the film too much meaning because, you know, when we're making a movie, when you make a movie in Northern Ireland, set in Northern Ireland, the other is usually the other side of the divide. You know, it's either Protestant or, or Catholic. It, it's along sectarian lines. But in this movie, the other it begins as Danny Deleuze's character, a man who went away for 14 years, comes out of prison, and has decided he's, he's giving up any involvement in any, um, any, any armed struggle. So he's the outsider then, but then because the movie is following him, he becomes our surrogate. So he is us, he's not the other, he's us. And so the other is actually part of the Catholic, Republican nationalist uh, community. So it, it's a very, very strange mix and again, I'm stressing to anybody listening here. I think I'm affording the film too much value in its, in its, in its political waste. Do you know what I mean? And yeah,
0: I think you know. It reminded me of a couple of things. One is the love story just seems like a very fourth-rate, low-rent Romeo and Juliet that never coheres yeah. in a meaningful way. And the other thing was that the story of As you say, Harry, the antagonist who wants to have violence permeate everything. Mm. Uh, His whole identity seems to be violence. And then you have Joe, the father, the kind of IRA commander, who's the father of the love interest for Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Danny. Um, Maggie is her name. So Joe is moving towards peace. So it reminded me in some respects of what I thought was the richest season of The Wire, the second season, where you had the most complex ambiguity. Yeah. And, and that rich character at the heart of it, who's working down at the docks, who can only function through corruption. Yeah. The institutionalized corruption is such that the only way you can protect people to be good is to dip into evil a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought a more nuanced example than than even The Godfather was what they had in that second season. But you yeah. had room to tell that story, room to flesh out the other characters.
1: Yeah, yeah, a It does it dozen episodes at least. Yeah.
0: No, because Harry is just a shark. He just seems like somebody who's completely evil, sadistic. Yeah. Um and you have some of the other characters. I mean, I thought the most compelling character, as you pointed out, is the, the former trainer of Ike. Danny. Ike, it's yes. really well acted. I think it's the only performance that doesn't seem oddly passive. Put your gun down, dolly friend. Fight me like a man. Didn't I hear you? I coached him. I trained him when he was a child.
1: None of the characters have sufficient agency, you know. No. I, and I thought I had I remember when I saw the movie in the theater for the first time. I was unfamiliar with Ken Stott, the actor who pl- portrayed Ike, and so his introduction, where he, you, um, Daniel DeLuise's character um, meets him in the flop house, and uh, Ike is completely drunk, yeah. and he was abused at Dan, and then the next morning. Ike has sobered up and he says, was I talking to you last night? And I thought, oh my God, that's a fantastic characterization, a complete flip, right? And, you know, then he's in a way, he's almost the cliche of the, the, the trainer looking for redemption by proxy. You know, he's going to find his redemption through Daniel DeLewis. But in actual fact, you know, um, he, he wants to revitalize the gym in the community. And but he is he's the one character who breaks the um, the code of silence that is so oppressive within the the Catholic community as controlled by the IRA, which I find really uh, one of the things that was quite nice, but absolutely implausible was when Maggie is talking to Dan. They keep on saying, what are you saying? What are you talking about? And you know the thing is that they know they know precisely the political emotional terrain that they're 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 navigating. So there's no point in saying what are you saying, what are you what are you talking about. So there's almost this verbal misunderstanding, and the verbal misunderstanding comes through the silence that's uh, imposed upon the community by the IRA. And Ike breaks that, and and he's he's murdered not because he's trying to reconcile the communities, he's murdered because he breaks the let me bring in another cultural reference the omerta it's the code of code of silence that imposed and uh, i thought he was the most interesting character maybe the movie could have been about him
0: yeah you know i thought so too
1: it's brilliant performance and and when he dares to confront harry saying what about your kid we don't know about harry's kid harry's kid is never named we don't know <coughs> we get him. he was yeah. killed but how or why what you know immediately as a as a viewer in in ireland in 1997 98 i'm wondering who murdered wh- who killed him who murdered him was it the british armed forces was it the british army was it the or you see the role of the constabulary was it the police force was it the loyalist unit or was it heaven forbid the ira killing one of their own because he had stepped out of line and if you have those four cards play them put them down on the table one after another and tease the whole thing out. And then all of a sudden you got a really, really complex scenario. But as you said, Harry is just this one note, almost sociopath or psychopath, you know?
0: Well, I mean, it all just seems a little half-baked because yeah. we have, Daniel Day-Lewis's character has gone away for 14 years to prison. Yeah. And it begins with him being released. There's a, uh, a wedding inside the jail. So we're getting a sense of that flavor of okay. prisoners' wives. This is a reality of this struggle. Yeah. And the moment that Daniel de lewis leaves the prison, it's like there's helicopter surveillance all the time. Like the helicopter is sort of the the music of the film. It's almost the <laughs> score. Yeah. Um, there's tanks, there's soldiers everywhere. I mean, it's frontline war zone kind of oppressive feeling.
1: Well, Brian, that was the truth of it. You know, yeah, they, I'm
0: not saying it's exaggerated. Sure. So, yeah. But, but the moment he gets out, then with all of this surveillance, with all of their lives being in you. orbit of yeah. this, you know, death at the
1: death at the door at any moment, everybody is shocked that Daniel Day Lewis has been released from jail. Right now, I know where you're, I can see where you're going with this. You know, a, a, a community under complete surveillance and everyone's just surprised that he's out. This guy who went to
0: jail, and again, he didn't go to jail for a crime because there would be an opportunity for redemption. Screenwriter wouldn't go near that. He, <laughs> he took the fall for somebody. He wasn't willing, actually for Harry, he wasn't willing to name names. So then he goes to jail because of passivity And he is invited to join a group of IRA members, but refuses to do that. So then he's seen as uh, he's alienated the group that he's aligned himself with with the initial catalyst. Yeah. And so he serves 14 years on the basis of good behavior. One would assume passivity, (laughs) but it's role in that. Yeah. So you're kind of like, well, where does this guy stand on any of these issues? He, yeah. he doesn't want to be part of the IRA, but he doesn't want to alienate them at the outset in terms of avoiding what yeah. sounded like a life prison sentence yeah. for some death. Presumably we don't find out what that is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and he gets out and it's such a muted performance by yeah. Danny.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, and that's that's a really, really different, difficult path for any actor or actress to travel is that they have to have agency. They have to have a scene where you can see their their inner motivation or their inner conflict. And, you know, I think for just off the top of my head, there's only one movie that had a character, had an actor or a character that is incredibly passive, but yet is is facing death at every single moment. It was um, Adrian Brody in The Pianist, okay? And that performance was was mesmeric because he actually internalized everything to the point that you didn't think he was acting at all. Yeah. Incredibly hard to do, and in the same year, I think that was up against Daniel De Lewis in *Gangs in New York*, where he actually plays a gargoyle, you know, yeah. <laughs> completely outlandish. But you're right that the difficulty there is that when Danny comes out, everybody knows. Jesus Christ, Danny Flynn! Come on, move a- That Danny Flynn? I think so. But you know, he wants to travel his own path, but this, this notion that nobody would know, or it was a surprise that would have been rippled along the, the, the wing of the H block, whichever wing it was there for the prison, the IRA prisons, they would have known. and um, and maybe Harry would have come to greet him to say, well done. you took a hit for the team and we'll remember you. Um, and you know, then he comes back to his apartment or his flat and it's been bricked up and, uh, you know, I don't know whether that was a that was a, a a tradition or a custom within the culture. Maybe it was because he's been rewarded. There was his his house is going to be there when he comes back. But when he goes into the house, just just as a there's no mildew on the wall. Fourteen years of damp has not destroyed the interior. <laughs> The thing is, I mean, I'm not, I'm being serious. In the hands of a, um, Jim Sheridan is a good director, but in the hands of someone who's really in control of the material, that would have become a metaphor that the wallpaper would have become emblematic of. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Scorsese who has this ability to, in one picture, in one frame, to visualize what the film could be about, right? Yeah. He's got, he gets that, and nails that image, whether it's the ice, the hand in the ice bucket, or uh, De Niro in the ring on his own we don't have that visual language in, in the boxer, So it's cinematically, I don't think it's that rich either. and um, which is, as I said, it's just, it's just, it's such a pity because the material was there, the people involved were, were there. I mean, um, the guy, the director of photography was a guy called Chris Menges. He had won two Academy awards in the last years prior to that for the mission and the killing fields. Uh, Jerry Hamling was the editor. he, he was Oscar nominated for in the name of the father. He'd worked with Alan Parker on Mississippi burning and he won an, he was, he earned an Academy Award for that. And the reason why I bring that in is because Mississippi burning could have been a template for this type of movie, because it's all about breaking the silence of an incredibly oppressive culture to release people from the bonds of violence and bigotry. And again, I don't want to send I'm just repeating myself, but it, it just doesn't work. I don't
0: know Well, well yeah. and I, I think you're right that just focusing on Danny as as the pill to drop into the situation to fizz its way to health, yeah. There's just not enough there. Whereas if you had told this story from the trainer Ike, I think you see a kind of martyrdom there where he's willing to accept equipment from the British police, right. from the British forces. Because he just wants his kids to to be looked after. He wants all kids to be looked after. He's trying to see past the the lines that are drawn to the next generation of it. Right. Um, And he's lost his star pupil in Danny for 14 years. He outlines that Danny lost his way. Yeah. Um, You know, so I thought he as a focal point would be the most interesting because it seems to be the most robust perspective
1: yeah and we we can see what the years the last 14 years done to him he's fallen into a dependency on alcohol yeah. and he's fighting against himself and you know the funny thing is when i was watching it again and uh, danny comes out of prison and his arc the the you know, the thing about usual movies about prisoners ex cons is that there is an arc that they have this goal they could you know they want to make a fresh start when they come out of prison um but in the 14 years that Danny has been inside, he's made that decision prior to the movie starting. So he has no journey to go on. he's <laughs> so made a decision beforehand. But I just thought it have been really, really good. As you were saying, had the story been told from Ike's point of view? Ike hears that Danny's back out. Now Ike wouldn't be the first person to hear it because he's, he's so down on his luck and he's so marginalized. So he hears echoes and then he goes around to Danny's house and he says, come on back, come on back. And then you would have potentially great scene, which is a little bit echoey of The Godfather Part Three. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. And then Dan's conflict there, because, you know, Danny wants to, he could simply say, I want to go to England, I want to go to America, I want to leave. But it's almost like the Jimmy Stewart character in It's a Wonderful Life. Everything keeps pulling him back home because this, in a way, his destiny. And so that would have been a, a much stronger arc and then maybe they would have been able to play the, the political thing on the political aspect on the background, but maybe part of the problem is that they foreground, the politics so much is that the characters represent certain political or um, ideological positions. One is democratic. Uh, one is, you know, through the uh, constitution and electoral process, as opposed to the ballot uh, guns and violence, you know, and they represent these four different corners. Do you know, um, uh, but, you know, talk about another implausibility. And I, we, we've got to be careful about beating the movie too much. <laughs> you know I mean? Otherwise, it's just, I think the, the people listening to us would be wondering, why am I listening to two guys beating up on a movie? But, oh, but, but there, I... there, there was one complete um, startling and shocking implausibility in the film was when um, Danny and Ike organized a cross-community bout and it takes place at the city hall, so in, in Belfast. And there's obviously uh, great publicity about it. And the, or you see the Royal Ulster constabulary. The, the police arrive, and as you said, they've made a donation to the local gym to get the kids with to give the kids better equipment. And then the uh, the chief of police effectively comes in and takes a photo opportunity with with the two fighters, wishes them the best luck, watches a few rounds, and then leaves. And as he comes out, he gets into his car and his car is blown up. Okay. Now, anybody in who's any, in any way familiar with a, a war torn country knows that the chief of police and the head of security, firstly, doesn't drive their own car. It's all, they've always got a security detail. And if they do drive their own car, we all know that they check the underside of the car for explosives. And it was just, so bad i mean you know when you're when you're watching a movie i think as an audience member you go in and you give the movie a certain amount of credit you know you you hand over sort of 10 credits and if the movie sort of starts taking things for granted and playing with the credits and and denying you sort of making things implausible you you begin to take the credits back from the movie and for me, that was the, the, the final credit that I took back. I said, nothing the film does from here on in can redeem it because the credibility, my, my credulity, but the faith that I placed in the film has been betrayed and the movie has abused it. Do you know? Um, I can't think of an equivalent where you're watching other films, but there's a certain point where you just go, I've had enough. It's like when movies, people, people walk out of movies They said, nothing can happen now that will redeem this for me.
0: I think you're right because I mean, I think, like I remember watching the movie Heat, and I at the beginning of that film, the way that the criminals, their degree of sophistication pulling off the first heist of um, not like getting a, a dump truck or something, a cement truck and ramming it into something, but the precision of the choreography mm-hmm. of exactly what they're doing, what the responses will be from it. Knowing how the police will 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 react to it, I just went. I'm in very good hands. Right, this has really been looked after by yeah. somebody who really cares about verisimilitude of yeah. highly sophisticated criminals. And then we get equally sophisticated people chasing them, right. and it's blurring the lines of the two. Very nice. Yeah. But here I just found I'm ready to be dropped into. I mean, I was 18 when this came out and I went to the theater, a big fan of Daniel Day-Lewis and a big fan of the director also. In the name of the father, I thought was an excellent film. But all of it removed me from the investment that I wanted to make into the struggle of how this story was going to illuminate a fresh mm-hmm. angle about it. And similarly, one issue that that was really challenging is to have a protagonist start in his lane of here's who I am. And there's absolutely no growth to where he's headed. He's just consistent. The whole time is a major problem because, because he's got these forces that he's in opposition to. Okay. But it reminds me a bit of, let's say the Shawshank redemption part of the huge pleasure of that is that whose redemption is it? You only think about it when you know that Red has explained that hope is the most dangerous thing in his psyche. Yeah. And the last words of the book and the last words of the film are, I hope. Yeah. The redemption has been achieved in the
1: last four
0: words of that script. Right.
1: Beautifully said.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so you recognize the bait and switch that we were never there was no redemption for a falsely incarcerated man with Andy Dufresne. Yeah. Whereas here, the passivity that got him into jail, and now he gets out, and there's a kind of passivity. Be a boxer again. We're not really sure why. (laughs) It's it's what he was doing. He wants to go back to this woman who he said. Uh, He wouldn't marry her before he went in, Mm. but didn't tell her not to go with anybody else either. You know, so there's uh, this degree of what do you want? If this is your Juliet, push in your chips at some point.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and then of all guys that Maggie marries, it's Danny's best friend. I mean, (laughs) and, you know, F, yeah, there's, again, there are so many things. But it's interesting talking about the character growth and the lack of character growth. Uh, there is a, a remarkable performance by Daniel Lewis where, where he um, portrays a man who has no character growth at all. But the movie so brilliantly sustained is Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Because he's, but the, he has got such a phenomenal internal conflict and rage at the world. It's really, really fascinating highly toxic, incredibly unpleasant personality. You wouldn't want to spend five minutes in this guy's presence for fear that actually you become exposed to his radiation. He's just so dangerous. But but there is no character growth in There Will Be Blood at all. You know, he, he has no epiphany. He's no redemption. He's no arc. He's just as greedy. He's just as driven by greed at the beginning as he is at the end. Right. And, or, or maybe there is a bit there, well, there, there's certainly Growth in terms of complexity of his character. His character is fascinating. I'm not knocking the, the way um, uh, P.T. Anderson or uh, Paul Thomas Anderson wrote the character. I think it's one of the really, really great American movies of the, of the 21st century. But just mentioning in comparison to the lack of growth that Danny has in the boxer, it shows that actually you can, a really, really stringent storyteller could have made that character much more compelling and much more interesting. But part of the problem, Bryn, I think, may have been down to the the way that Jim Sheridan makes movies. To my knowledge, with the exception of his very, very first feature, My Left Foot, which was made for a minuscule amount of money. I mean, it was low budget was hardly the word. Um, Every single film since then, he has fanatically rewritten the script as he goes along to the point that when he finishes the shoot, they go into the edit, they say, well, we're missing this and we're missing that. And so Jim is then afforded the opportunity to go back and do reshoots. Mm-hmm. And the reason why he's in that position, he, he, I mean, he's earned that sort of, um, I wouldn't say privilege, but sort of that uh, profligacy is because he's, he's so, um, he's been Oscar nominated so many times. He's such a, such a highly revered director. I think he, he's been nominated six times between mm-hmm. writing, producing and directing. And I think outside of Peter Weir, he's the, the most nominated writer, producer, director without a without an Oscar. And so I think, you know, in the name of the father had um big difficulties um in, in shooting the movie. And then they had to go back for reshoots because the American audience were a little bit confused as to the, the appeals process, which I can understand, it was in terms of clarity. But I, I, I know that for the boxer, they went shoot, reshooting and reshooting, and he was, in, he was trying to improvise on set. And I, as far as I'm aware, that's when Daniel Day-Lewis said, look, I'll finish out this movie, but really I can't tolerate this sort of in, um, this confusion on set when I've done all this preparation. I, I believe that Daniel Day-Lewis had his nose broken in bouts in, in preparation, and he injured his back. You know, so if you have a lead actor committing so much to the story and the director has the temerity to say, hey, let's throw away the script to the point that we really don't know where the story is. Just well, to... and,
0: and you raise there will be blood. I think that's a really good example, because that Upton Sinclair novel and I think where Anderson went with it is to me, I remember watching that the first time. I think I think that's the greatest film made in the 21st century. I, I can't I don't know what equals it in terms of power um but also it just seems that,
1: sorry, sorry. In, well, i just wanted to just quickly add in so many different disciplines within the film in terms of the soundtrack cinematography performance direction art direction everything just absolutely rips do you know what i mean it is such a brilliant muscular film sorry to get so enthusiastic but no my God. <laughs> but i
0: agree and i think you see his forebears i to me the way like like i watched that horrible spielberg film uh what is it ready ready that video game oh yeah ready Player one or something so off you see him to his daddy complex with stanley kubrick and orson wells i think the new yorker touched on this a little bit but you see him redo the shining and it has a very orson wells kind of complex of I have all this money, but I just can't be more original than this guy when he was 25 and didn't know what he was doing. How do I overthrow Daddy, which is almost every film he makes is the same film with just different character arrangements. Sure. You know, Schindler as Daddy to the infantilized Jews Mm -hmm. that he frees. It's bizarre. But with P.T. Anderson, I felt like he's always been obsessed with Scorsese, Orson, and, um, oh God, the obvious one, and Kubrick. Yeah. And you see in that opening of how long he goes, it's daring the comparison to 2001 before anybody will say anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But you really get in that film into the heart of America. If you distill what America is now, what are the two most powerful forces, religion and oil? Yeah. And you're going to see them in a dance where they're equally matched with Plainview and this redneck in California who represents this farm with oil that's in it, where they both expose each other's hypocrisy and sort of facile nature to adapt to the problems. But it's a duel. It's a duel literally in the end to the death between these two. Um, And I think there you get what this was meant to be which is Danny being in the soul of Ireland and Northern Ireland and going to represent all these things. And in the end, he represents none of them because he hasn't signed up to represent them in his own life. And the director doesn't know how to use him in any meaningful way to illuminate the broader issues. So it's kind of an example of yeah, reaching, reaching in lots of ways,
1: but in the end, getting none of the things that the director and writer were looking for, I thought, with this. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And another thing is, the, the great thing about Anderson is, you know, in, in the beginning, he was compared to Scorsese because of his technique. And he was, because of the huge gallery of actors, he was compared to Robert Altman. Sure, sure, right. And then, um, now he's drifted into comparisons to Kubrick of no intention of his own, none. And I think it's because critics are looking for somehow to say, who is Anderson like? He's like himself, nobody else. And it's like when Kubrick arrived in the early days of his career, people compared him to Orson Welles because of his framing and his use of lenses. And then occasionally with the tracking shots, Max Offels. But then Kubrick just becomes himself, just like Orson Welles was himself, just like John Ford. And with Anderson, you know, he's just completely out on his own. You know, he's of his own type now. Jim Sheridan, however, I think when he, if you look at his earlier, early films, especially his first three pictures, my, my, my left foot and, um, um, the adaptation of Brian Fields played the field. And then in the name of the father, they're all about families, very, very closely knit, sometimes overly knit families. And the, the bonds between the father and the son and the mother and whatever that is, they're all there. And they're very Fordian in that respect. John Ford making great pictures about families, whether they're nuclear family or not. You know, a, a wagon trains going west, and that's that's um, uh, just, or cowboys just out on the range. This is the, this is the family that's created together. And in the, the Boxer, there really isn't a family that we can recognize. Danny doesn't have one. When he comes out of prison, there, there is no family unit for him to return to, okay? Maggie has her father but her husband's in prison which again which could provide great complexity because harry has lost his son so everybody seems to have lost somebody yeah but though but that emptiness is never either filled out or explained or expanded upon and so again we're coming back to this notion of th- this belief that we it's underutilized they didn't ex- they didn't exploit it to the full maybe it's because they were caught between wanting to make a movie addressing the peace process or they were trying to make a, a personal story about, uh, you know, a one uh, almost like a character study because the, 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 the controversy that was, met, that would uh, met in the name of the father when it was released in 1993 was so vitriolic in the British press that Jim Sheridan said that he wants to make a movie almost like an, not an ap- apologia, but sort of to correct uh, the, the, the reception that it had before. I mean, you know, the uh, the press accused Jim Sheridan of massive poetic license and factual inaccuracies in "In the Name of the Father," which was obviously about the the the, uh, the Four who were um, unjustly imprisoned for a crime that they had no involvement with, and. Jim Sheridan was brilliant in his response. He says, well, you know, I think you guys played fast and loose with the facts in court. <laughs> oh. so let's, let's leave that one aside. But it was his motivation to make the story, which was a little bit conflicted, you know, um, because he, he wanted to make a movie about, uh, the, 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 the nationalist Republican Catholic conflict, the internal conflict within that community and I don't think he was able to bring it off on pretty much any level even to the point of Maggie played by a brilliant actress Emily Watson completely underutilized you know yeah
0: she's and she's such a good actress and you just feel that she's relegated again to just such a passive role
1: yeah she's she's the Montessori teacher next door to the gym isn't that coincidence fine okay we'll 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 give them that because the city's going to be small but her husband is in prison. We never know his name, and she never goes to visit him. And there's never a question of Maggie. It's time you went to see so and so, so and so. Especially at this point in the in the the internal conflict within the Catholic Republican nationalist community, you know. And I keep on mentioning those those three elements because you know, to the outsider, it's just Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. But as we knew through John Hume and his fantastic work. It, there wasn't this monolithic culture, Catholic culture, with the Northern Ireland. There was one aspect would have been nationalist, one aspect would have been republican, one aspect would have been completely neutral. On, said, so, you know, I'm not getting involved. And part of that problem that the movie doesn't really address is the fact that for the majority of the the uh, atrocities that were carried out, the vast majority of people who were victims of it were working class.
0: Mm.
1: Okay, this was effectively like World War One depending on which side of Europe you were on, was this a war between nations or was this a war between classes, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, there's so many more different layers that the movie could have examined. Um, maybe Jim Sheridan didn't want to, or maybe he didn't have the, the capacity for it, but there's one aspect, uh, Bryn, that we haven't touched on that I'd like to address in terms of prison pictures in general. You know, uh, outside of the, the opening of the film, Uh, which actually I thought gave us a great vignette of the the marriage inside the prison with the the groom is wearing handcuffs. That was, that's inspired. Yeah. And there's also a great other little vignette where you see Joe played by Brian Cox as the local IRA commander. When he goes to a meeting, he goes up into the group of a group of flats and he walks through this labyrinth where the the gaps, but there's, um, there's, there's, there's wardrobes, which are pulled back to conceal this massive hole in the wall where he can walk from one end of a building to another undetected by the O.E.C. outside. That was a really, really good vignette. Yeah. Um, but in terms of uh, the, the, uh, depicting prison, outside the first couple of minutes, we don't see it. But for me, it's it's, it's, it's thing that perhaps they could have worked, uh, ex- we, we need to discuss is the, the undefeatable, unbeatable prisoner. In, in movies and they're usually white, you know? And, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, we mentioned Shawshank, which I think is a wonderful story. It's beautifully told. I haven't read Stephen King's short story, but I think the movie is really, really terrific. Um, but almost to a man, every time we look at the unbeatable prisoner, um, he's white and he's unjustly accused. He's in there for a crime he didn't commit. And immediately the, the analogy to Christ is just off the charts, hmm. you know, and not only is he an innocent man, once he gets in there, he's beaten beyond belief, but he takes the beatings. It's almost like he's taking the beatings for the audience's sins, you know,
0: you're, you're reminding me of, of, well, two things. One, Cool Hand Luke, yes. you have a boxing scene in, the, in, I believe, the middle of the film, right? And I also think, no, it's not when the boxing happens, but when he consumes the 50 eggs to win the bet, he is left after the celebration that he wins the bet, where he is in a Christ-like pose on the table, arms spread out. So yeah, Yeah. it's got both of those tropes into it.
1: Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, we know that statistically um, ethnic minorities make up the majority of the, um, the prison population. Yeah. And so I, I, wonder why do filmmakers, and this would be another question for, we can, we can't really apply to, to the boxer because the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland are Caucasian. I mean, 90% of the population would be, um, but the vast majority of the time, as I said to you, they're, they're Caucasian. And so when we do have ethnic minorities depicted in prison pictures, um, uh, it's always because there's been a miscarriage of justice and they have to go through a the legal proceedings. Now, don't be wrong. There was a movie that was released, I think it was last year or early this year called Just Mercy, mm. uh, which is based on a true story. Uh, Jamie Foxx plays uh, a man who was unjustly imprisoned. And um, can you, Bryn? I'm going to have to ask you just to pause this for a second because I've forgotten the name of the actor. Sure. Who, plays, um, uh, it was a really good movie. I thought it was um, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. So you've got Jimmy Fisk plays this man who's unjustly accused and Michael B. Jordan plays his lawyer. And um, that is all, all really about uh, miscarriage, of, uh, miscarriage of justice, but they're usually true stories, okay, about ethnic minorities. And then, so really, what's happening? I think in, in films, um, the vast majority of prison pictures, is it's sort of that the fantasy, the, the white fantasy, that we too are persecuted to the same degree. Right, Do you know right. what I mean? And uh, Danny's character is almost Christ-like in the film. You know, he he's almost executed at the end of the film. Right. You know, and he, how is he saved from a helicopter up above, flying, right. out the scene, witnessing the scene? So, you know, um, those are. Those are things that fascinated me but irritated me at the same time. It's sort of, uh, it would have been much more interesting then if also to Harry, maybe to investigate the character of Harry. You know, if the story had been a fight between Harry and Ike.
0: Yeah. You know? No, I, I agree. I think that's a way more interesting focal point. I just think they created a nexus where, I mean, in the, in the best of these films, like you were mentioning with Altman, with MASH. There you get the Korean War. You get war. You get um, what is patriotism? Because you know, there's all kinds of issues that are in there, but they're they're deceptive. Also, they're tricky ways of looking at at participation, at yeah. competence. And uh, here, unlike those other films where you create this gestalt with yeah. good performances and good writing, and um, some of the ambiguity adding to the complexity and richness. Um, I mean, we we're talking earlier about uh, there will be blood. Uh, everything that was left out that informed that film has a power that still leaves it open in my mind. Yeah. I'm st- I'm still unsure what forged Daniel Plainview into such an unbelievably evil, biblically evil character and yet you want him to win at the same time. Not yeah. not unlike Godfather, either, where you have another angel in the soul of America pleading it's about family and, and these kind of things. It's a very interesting calculus, the writing of that, as, as with Brando, where he's gentle, he doesn't cheat on his wife, so you have these sign-signaling of decency to excuse the the total ruthlessness with which they play their trade and justifications for it some more legitimate than others but here I uh, there's no they're not real people it just feels like wardrobe you know more than anything I just sort of felt like well here's an Irish boxer and here's the IRA guy who hates him Mm -hmm. Um, and Every time it gets to a moment where they gain a third dimension, such as Harry having Ike drunk, raising his son's death, and that he filled his son with all with bad ideas about the cause, and you see his eyes grow in rage. Um, yeah, I wanted to learn more about that. I wanted to see how Harry turned into somebody dark, because it signaled that there was complexity to him. And the moment the director gets near it, it's just gone.
1: It's just gone. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you were saying, you know, what what created Harry? Well, clearly the environment created Harry. It's like what what created Daniel Daniel Plainview? Literally the earth. He emerges from. The, it's like primordial. <laughs> and it, it's it's that it's that ability I think to to uh, create a word, cinematize the theme, yeah. right? Instead of dramatize, verbalize, or whatever we want, and um, Paul Thomas Anderson through a nonverbal 14 minute opening sequence, I think it's 14 minutes before we actually hear an, a, a discernible word being, being uttered. And then this really strange soundtrack composed by Johnny Greenwood, you know, it's, it's almost atonal in like, you know, expecting Anton Weber to have dominated this, this sonic scape. And then the, the landscape is almost lunar. You know, and this is, an, this is an unusual man. He's not of this earth or he's not of this land because this isn't earth. Do you know what I mean? Right. He's completely out of place. Um, and as you said, the great thing about There Will Be Blood, it's so much about America without actually foregrounding it's about America.
0: Ever. Ever mentioning that, yeah. that uh, that's the broader theme. No. And, yeah, you're absolutely
1: right. And um, uh, then the, just the layering of cinematic illusion because there's, there's elements or it's sort of there's an air of Chinatown about it. There's mm. there's no reference to Chinatown at all, but there's water. The water is the oil. Um, and the way um, uh, Daniel DeLewis speaks in the film sounds so much like John Huston. Right. Who, who played Noah Cross in Chinatown. But the thing is, none of those little things that I've mentioned actually enhance our understanding of the movie it's almost like i'm just i'm just giving trivia here do you know what i mean but the thing is it is about america it is so much more about the human condition and bringing it back to the boxer i think maybe brin another failing for the film or another opportunity that they missed was telling the story more from the point of view of maggie yeah because it's you know We see the the young couple getting married in the prison, but unfortunately, when that bride leaves prison, we know that she's a prisoner just as the way Maggie is, because as as Joe says to her, as Brian Cox's character says to her, when the rumors are going around that she's seeing Danny Flynn, he says, you have to be above reproach.
0: Right.
1: Caesar's wife. And so the movie could have really examined the way this vicious patriarchal order further suppresses women within this very, very tight community. And uh, I think it would have been much more interesting as we were saying, Harry and Ike would have been that conflict would have been interesting and Maggie somewhere within the two. Maybe Maggie was the niece of both men. To right. me, she's to both. I don't know, I'm, I'm, we're just sort of spitballing at another opportunity to, to re-examine the story. But um, those sort of things, left the movie in a very, very strange position because when it was released, strangely enough, the movie was very well received by the British press. Hmm. Um, while in Ireland, we had spent so much time waiting for the movie to be released through the reshoots and everything like this, we grew so tired of it that the Arya, you know my friends in Dublin, we referred to it as my left hook. <laughs> okay? Uh. But but the thing was when the movie was released, the British press really liked it, because the British were not in it. There was no British, there was no British army, there was no British judicial system. They were not the villains, right? The villains in the movie were actually part of the Catholic nationalist republican community, because was as Jim Sheridan was doing, he was fracturing it and he was saying it's not a monolithic entity. There are different variances between them. So what the British press were enjoying was oh. It's the paddies who are the problem. Right. But then again, a, a, another way to wear this out was it didn't connect with audiences. It didn't, it didn't make money at the box office at all. Uh, and I think it cost somewhere near $30 million. $30 million Jeez. Hell of a lot of money. It doesn't look it. it doesn't no, make,
0: it doesn't look it. It looks like a TV movie.
1: Yeah, which is really strange considering, as I said, the, the talents involved, you know? Um, but there was just when I remember uh, watching it again recently um, the, the murder of Ike the second it happened I mean I knew it was coming but the second it happened I just said to myself ah that's on the waterfront where the young boy m- kills all the pigeons right you know? Yeah. again it just says it lets us know what a, monom- what a, a monolith of a film on the waterfront is right um, so many films whether they try to or not can't escape its shadow you know yeah. any you've got a story about two brothers and if you dare put them in the back of a car you're in trouble or if you even have a movie where two gangsters are in the back of a car you're in trouble right you know? um, Oh, oh it's, it's just it's a it's a terrific film and unfortunately i think this week we picked a movie that fell short of its goals well, so let's let's just, to
0: finish off, go through some of the, the categories. I think we've touched upon the Winnie Cooper category of whose perspective should be used. Yeah. They may have used the worst option of all of the characters in the film. And yeah. it's a rare film. I like Brian Cox as an actor because he's a great character. But it was really nice to see him play a subdued mm-hmm. version of somebody. I mean, yeah. generally, he loves to ham it up, and, and he's great fun to watch doing it. Yeah. But this was, um, there was, again, I, I wanted more time with him. I wanted to learn more about what made him have such an enlightened position Yeah. on, on the whole struggle. Why is he for peace? Um, it was a bit like Atticus Finch, where everybody loves that Atticus Finch just arrived at this enlightened position on racism. I would kind of like to know where he acquired that wisdom.
1: Yeah. It's- and also the thing about Brian Cox is when he plays subdued, he is so sad. There is such a, a sense of a broken man within him who has travelled so far in his life and he's made some discovery where he's had to completely reevaluate everything he thought that he understood in the world. Right. And ordinarily that is a completely shattering moment. But the beauty of his character, and it's just a glimpse of it, is that he is reconciled with his mistake. He right. said, the "Past is the past. We have an opportunity. We can go forward." And I can't afford to say this to you, Maggie, but I am sorry. I yeah. can't say this to you, Danny, but I'm sorry. So you know the, that's the brilliant thing about Brian Cox. He, as you said, he can play really, really big and really, really nasty. In the, the TV series Succession, which is right. great. Yeah, he's great. Yeah,
0: but he's a king he- actor. He's a king actor. Is like Orson Welles used to say, like. I'm not meant to be the the guy on the street, the merchant or something. I'm meant to play king for better or worse. And Cox yeah. is a king
1: actor. Yeah, King Lear. I mean, that's what Succession is. You know, right. he's, he's picking off. Yeah. So I think we we will we agree. We've we've actually found the Winnie Cooper angle <laughs> for the boxer. Yeah. Um, critical opinion at the time
0: versus now. Um, it seemed to do okay critically, as you said, with the British press um rotten tomatoes it's it's above average but it didn't really seem to resonate at the time seems like it's a film that's largely forgotten beyond that it starred now hailed as the greatest living actor
1: yeah i think in reverse um route that we've been discussing films like fat city and raging bull which were lukewarm to be the best that have gotten better Um, the the boxer received very very warm reviews in the United States. It didn't get any Oscar nominations, but the Golden Globes gave it a, a number of uh, uh, nominations. And I think part of it was it's it's hard to appreciate this for if you if you did if you weren't living in Ireland at the time. We received such enormous goodwill internationally in the nineties and early two thousands. It's it was embarrassing. It was almost like we were the most sacred people, the blessed people walking the earth. You know. Um, it wasn't only in terms of movies, um, musically, you know, you 2 had conquered America in the 80s. There suddenly there was a wave of Irish bands who were getting in on this Celtic wave across the United States because of the peace process and the, the encouragement that Clinton was handing down politically from, from Washington. Um, a whole The cores became a huge band. Right. It's almost, almost down to the fact that they played at a gig where the American ambassador to Ireland was present. And she said, I want you to play in Washington. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got, you know, I think they've been signed already to the record company, but even in terms of sports, I mean, the Irish football team was turning up at the world cup regularly. You know, this is, this is unheard of. And I think the reason why the the boxer was so well received at the time was because critics just wanted to be wanted sort of almost willing Ireland to uh, a land of the island, to a land of peace, a time of peace. But the movie's uh, reputation has only gone downhill since then. It hasn't uh, hasn't survived. Um,
0: from this film that I don't think either of us liked very much. Um, most iconic moment of the film for you? Uh,
1: God, that's... Well, for me, you know, uh, Bryn, for an iconic moment to work, it's got to really resonate in many, many different arenas. And if you miss one, it's a good scene. And if you miss them all, it's, it just doesn't register at all. I think that I really, really want to find one, you know, uh, but I, I got, forgive me, I, I can't Bryn, you know, there's scenes that had great potential, but didn't deliver, you know?
0: I th- I think for me it was the opening scene which made me think I was going to see a film I would really okay. quite enjoy as something new you know the the prisoner's wives the marriage yeah. in jail yeah. daniel day lewis's shadow boxing in the courtyard this is the stuff that I when I saw the trailer for the film I thought wow this is going to be a really complex rich interesting film that's going to drop me into the <laughs> conflict in Ireland and it it just felt like a
1: bad musical, you know, where they didn't sing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That one is straight to the notes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm wow. sorry, but it just, God. Um,
0: most memorable quotes, I'm going to say again, um, I thought the quotes that were memorable, again, just brought out how flat the film was because the quotes were, I've had you in my mind for 14 years and I can't forget you. And I just, I
1: that. Uh, no, it's funny because I think five years prior to that, um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola had adapted Dracula.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that delivers one of the great lines, I have crossed oceans of time to be with you. And that is a romantic line. <laughs> and I know it's a horror movie and it's a completely over the top, but it's really, really good. And the one that Dan was given just, just wasn't up to it at all. You know, I mean, I keep on hearing, what are you talking about, what are you saying? What are you talking about, what are you saying? That's all I hear, you know? Um, yeah, so we can't think of an icon, a, a memorable line. In um, actual fact, the it, it, sad irony is, the most memorable line for me as an Irish viewer actually happens at the very, very beginning of the film while the credits, are, the opening credits are rolling. And it's not delivered by any of the characters in the movie. It's actually a real life recording of the Sinn Féin president, which, and Sinn Féin were the political wing of the IRA, and um, Gerry Adams saying, they haven't gone away, you know. And that, when, you know, the, the peace process was, was on the road, right, we were moving towards, uh, approaching a, peace, a peaceful resolution and an agreement. And then Gerry Adams very famously stood up and gave this speech. And he said, just, they haven't gone away, you know. And that just shivered up everyone's spine saying, oh my God, the violence is still there. So that's the most iconic, that's the most memorable line in the movie, but that's taken from real life, you know? And um, yeah, that the scariest line for me in the, in the movie was written, was delivered by um, Jerry Adams. We're not the <laughs> in the movie, so.
0: Yeah, well, no, and I remember Bill Clinton, they use him in the opening credits also, and.
1: It's, it's, the, very, are the, very, it's the very first voice heard in the film. He yeah. said, it's, it's a beautiful day. You know, it's almost like Reagan saying it's a morning again in America. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was like a drop of water for someone stuck in the desert to hear an American president speak like that, to engage with this difficulty, this, this war that had been going on for decades was, you know, it was just, it was, as I said, it was like a a drop of water to everybody. It was fantastic. And I think, you know, maybe to say there's a greater film, a much greater film, there's a great movie yet to be made about that. You know, and maybe we'll just take an outsider. I think
0: maybe, maybe. Yeah, you know, yeah I, I, think think I, I think you're probably right. I, I had a very similar feeling to this film as when you're prepped for it's going to be a great boxing film and you have a great actor playing the lead and a good, solid director. It's very similar to me to, to the feeling of going to see Ali with Michael Mann directing and Will Smith and all of this buzz about how good it was gonna be in a huge budget to look after the necessary locations and music and everything. And everything was flat.
1: Yeah.
0: Everything was just flat.
1: Yeah, and they, they gave Will Smith almost a sort of an obligatory Oscar nomination because <clears throat> the studio just bullied their way to get that through the promotion and and uh, within the Academy. And yeah, I. You know, when a couple of weeks ago, when we were drawing up a list of movies that we could possibly discuss, that movie came nowhere near it. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even remember that they'd made a biopic of Ali, Ali yeah. at all. You know, there's nothing I remember about that movie. Maybe John Voight's Howard Cassell, but that's about it, you know?
0: Cassell, yeah. I think Voight was very good in it, and I think Jamie Foxx stole it with, right. with, with Bondini. As uh, a trainer as his trainer selling, selling the belt, um, right. to get out of his own issues. That was, that was interesting. But yeah. on the whole, again, you have so much material to work with and, and so many aspirations for it to resonate on all of these levels. It missed all of them.
1: Yeah. I think part of the, part of the problem may have been that man. And I think Eric Roth, would that Eric Roth maybe have co-wrote and co-written the screenplay? I'm not too sure. Their canvas was too big. Excuse I do me. I'm not talking about canvas as in the ring, but it, it was too big because Ali had such a re- remarkable life. The journey, the journeys, not just the journey, the journeys he went on, pick one, don't pick them all. You it's know, too big. you're right. what you need is sort of a little bit like Fat City, a miniature just to go in on a, on one aspect, especially considering that rum, uh, when we were kings, focused exclusively on that one fight, the Rumble in the jungle. If they had taken the moment when Ali wins, um, you'll correct I need you to correct me, uh, when, when he won the, I'm really struggling here, when he won the Olympics in 60, yep. then he turned pro, and when was he drafted? And for me, that's the story or yeah. a story to focus on the, you know, when he went into jail, I mean, make a, make a movie about a boxer without a fight, put the fight in prison and everyone on the outside, you know, um, Dr. Martin Luther King and everybody trying to get everything else going outside of the prison and Ali is on the inside. And I don't know, just, yeah, that movie was a real mess. And I don't like saying that because the people involved are really, really talented. I mean, Michael Mann, fantastic films. And Jamie yeah. Fox, yeah, but you're right. I mean, he did steal it in the best way he deserved to, because his performance was fantastic. Maybe the way it was written and the movie was orientated, his character, the, the trainer, was the more fascinating character.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it, it's sad to say, but my last thing, like the iconic takeaway from this film is it takes real talent to have Daniel day Lewis at the heart of your story with a tremendous backdrop and everything here for an audience is just flat. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it, it's unfortunate, but I mean, I did want us to be able to cover both the great films and the misfires. And I think that that's what this one amounts to is it just, just doesn't click.
1: Yeah, and I think I'd actually, I have it written here at the end note, um, you know, the in the box of the ironic thing is the ring is the noble fight, okay, and obviously the, the very solid, dirty, ugly, brutal fight is outside of the ring, but they didn't bring that, maybe they were just too melancholic, I don't know, um, or maybe, maybe it's a case of just going to the well once too often, between the... Daniel DeLuis and Jim Sheridan, and then going back to tell yet again, another story. Because if for Irish audiences, bring the year before, uh, Neil Jordan had made Michael Collins, which was about one of the, the great um, uh, leaders in Irish history. Um, and that movie, again, was a very, very disappointing rendering of Irish history, too simplistic, and so many opportunities missed, you know? So we don't have a very good record of making great movies about ourselves in Ireland. I'll tell you, just, just as a minor little thing for me, the the best movie about the conflict of war in Northern Ireland was a movie directed by Steve McQueen, Hunger. Mm. uh, Michael Fassbender playing Bobby Sands because he broke it out of the very, very localized politics. And he made it into a a sort of almost a universal contemplation on the body politic, you were literally assaulting yourself. It was that the hunger striker attacking himself, you know, and that was the focus of his attention as opposed to the, what's happening on a certain wing within the H block and this is the loyalist wing and this is the Republican wing. It's just, it's, it's the most poetic and most incisive and most memorable uh, movie I think about the, the war in Northern Ireland. Just if, you're, if your listeners want to, to go off and try something a bit better. Sure. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Stephen, and I will talk to you on Thursday. Yes, indeed. Look forward to it. Likewise. Take care. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.